The first cut, cut, the first cut, the first cut, cut, first, the first, first cut. Oh, hey there. Hi there. It is time for another podcast from the In The Cut series. Uh, we were in L.A. for a couple weeks interviewing the most amazing Hollywood editors, um, including um, Alan Heim, who is Oscar winner for Network back in the 70s, which is pretty awesome film. Um, I sat down with Alan uh, for a while, and we discussed um, such other films that he's worked on as American History X and All That Jazz. Um, he was pretty hardcore because he's like more than twice my age and he's seen it all and I was just like hey hi what oh hey there and I've just felt like you know he's got so much experience I didn't really know what to say but the great thing is he just he told me all his secrets and he kind of gets aggro sometimes and he just like let it out I feel like it was almost like a therapy session but like in a good way in an infotainment way uh so have a listen and if you want to see the full interview uh, if you want to see it, check out crafttruck.com in the cut. I'll just teach you simple cuts to start with. What are they? started to tell us this really awesome story that I realized would be good. Okay. So I was asking about the Lenny Bruce credits. It's all the credits come before the movie. Like editor, gaffer, everything. Wow. That's, that's very common. It's not anymore, though. Sometimes. modern movies... It depends. I mean, it's good to get the audience into the yeah. picture. I'm trying to remember where the credits were. Let's see, Jazz had the credits at the end. I don't really remember. It, it varies. Yeah. It varies. Most things that people talk about on movies that I have some knowledge of are accidental. <laughs> uh, kill me. Um, okay. All right. All right. Um, I'll do the intro later on when we okay. know each other better. So, um, so I want to talk about, firstly, um, Network. Okay. Um, it's one of those films that uh, they show in film school still. Um, it's, uh, you know, still relevant, the message that, the messages that are in that film are still very, very relevant today and getting more and more so relevant, in my opinion. Um, how was your experience with that film? Oh, it was, uh, Editing Network was an absolutely spectacular experience. Uh, I had worked with Sydney on my first two movies. I, I had been a sound editor. And um, I did two, maybe three movies for Sidney Lumet as a sound effects editor. And almost never met him. He, we had a screening and he'd go off and do another movie. Sydney used to do three movies every two years. So nobody will do that anymore. Promise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, he was doing a film called Bye Bye Braverman. And it was a book that I particularly loved. It was a, a very funny uh, novel about uh, Jewish, uh, not necessarily Jewish authors, but authors in New York City and, and the agonies they go through and a funeral and a lot of other stuff. Anyway, he asked me if I would do his next movie. He didn't like the editor he was working with and he asked me if I would do his next movie and I said, you bet. So I ended up doing uh, The Seagull and Sidney stood over my shoulder, told me exactly where to cut and we would discuss things and um, 
I learned an enormous amount about performance and about um, trusting your instincts because he was fast. God, he was fast. But um, uh, and then, then I did another movie for him immediately thereafter um, called um, no, it was called The Seven Descents of Myrtle or actually Blood Kin. It had many names. And uh, The Seagull was... I was very excited to be doing it. I digress. We're going back to network in a minute. Oh, okay. But um, I was very excited to be doing The Seagull. And then I realized on opening night, it was a black tie opening, very classy, in a beautiful little theater in New York. And uh, the women in gowns, the men in tuxedos, mine rented. And uh, I saw people nodding off all around me. Oh, no. Yeah, heads were dropping like a bad juggling act. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's funny Jewish editors uh, um, anyway then I realized that it was not a good movie but I was thrilled and excited I had great 10 stars it was a very exciting experience for me and then I did the next one and after that I felt that I really I was a better editor than Sidney he was better at everything else but I, I just knew more about what to do and um, that's where your instincts kind of kicked in well he taught me a lot he taught me an enormous amount but I'd been looking at movies all my life you know as a kid and then as a sound editor working on some really good movies including one you know several of Sydney's The Pawnbroker anyway um, several several years later I was asked to do network and I was terrified that Sydney was going to ask me to do it the way we had done the previous two, which was with him standing over my shoulder and telling me exactly what to do. And I knew I couldn't work that way, but also I read the script. And the script was very Panachayevsky, and the cast was spectacular, and Sidney got great performances out of actors, always did. So I, uh, I of course, said I would, and next thing I knew, I was in Toronto doing the shooting, and then... Uh, I always like Toronto. It's a nice place. It was a small town. Yeah, Toronto. Toronto yes. <laughs> I've been there a few times. We didn't pay him to say that no, Toronto's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. It was a small town then. I remember what? that. Yeah, I was walking down the streets downtown, and it was snowing lightly, and it looked like a western town. There were all those. There's still some of the buildings up there, those kind of granite buildings, yeah. and they looked like banks in a western movie. Anyway, the film sort of came, network came out of the camera, and into my cutting room and out again. I mean, it took almost no time to cut. Does that mean you stuck right to the script, or was there any room for... Mostly, yeah. Patty Chayefsky was a really interesting guy. He was incredibly smart. He was prescient, as as evidenced by the fact that the film is still timely. Um, Definitely. You know, it was a little bit ahead of its time then, but not if you read left-wing political magazines, as I always did. Um, but, you know, we're still in a kind of an oil crisis. We're still dealing with terrorists. And it was funny. And it dealt with the human condition. So the film, I, I finished making my cut of the film uh, five days after we finished shooting, which is pretty quick. Wow. It's okay. That was on film, too. I mean... Uh, That's maybe a record even today. No, 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 no. no, no, no. You That's can do amazing. it, but um, I finished the film, we, we looked at it, I removed a, a bunch of walking around shots that 
Patty wanted, transitional shots. I removed those, um, and Patty and his producer, Howard Gottfried, and Sidney, they, you know, came into the cutting room. We started working on the movie, and very little was changed from my cut. And that's partly due to Sidney's um, minimal shooting. There were a couple of occasions where there was only one take and then we'd move on to the next. So that made it very efficient setup. for you? Very efficient, yeah. very quick. Um, so say, for example, the the scene, the I'm mad as hell scene. Yeah. You, what were you experiencing going through that? Because there's, there's a lot of things happening in that scene with yeah, but you know, not in front much. of the camera and everybody's reacting and all the heads out the window. Yeah. I mean, that's but, a very energetic but series again, of edits. But it's Sydney shooting also, so... You know, you had a couple of shots. He was brilliant at getting uh, designers who would find the right location, like the building where a lot of people pop their heads out. That was a vacant building. It was under construction, under renovation. I wasn't sure if that was a set. Hmm? I thought it was a set. Oh, no. Oh, wow. Nothing was a set. No, okay. Um, almost nothing. No, it was all shot in, in real offices and real... MGM had offices in New York at that time, so we used their offices, we used their screening room for screening purposes and for the, the scene in the movie with the, the mad prophets and things like that. But, um, yeah, we used real places all, all the time. Uh, what, th there were a couple of changes, there were a couple of changes, one of which was really important. Um, um, the, uh, the woman who played the wife Ugh, whose name escapes me. It always does. She had done very few movies, and um, she had a spectacular scene with um, Bill Holden when he told her that he was in love with the Faye Dunaway character. Yeah. And she was absolutely amazing in that scene. And it was in the wrong position in the movie. And I said... Listen, this should go before the scene where they go to the beach. Um, and if, if you... Um, what it did, if, if you had the beach scene first, it trivialized because it was such a bad relationship. Faye Dunaway talking business the whole time they're making love. And, it, and then there he is with this incredibly strong and beautiful wife. Um, I said, why don't we reverse the scenes? And Sydney said, no, no, it's not going to work. And Patty said, no, no, it's not going to work. And I was a little pissed off with Sydney at the time. So normally I would have just taken the time to do it, but Sydney didn't like to take time. I could have stayed in the evening and done it, but I got the feeling I know Sydney, and then you know he doesn't like to move things around from what he had. And then our producer flew in, and I, I, I sort of insist they wanted to take the scene out of the movie completely with the wife, and I said, no, 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 it's the best scene. I mean, she is incredible. It's a great performance, and we must keep it. So um, our producer flew in, and Monday morning early, I got a call from uh, Howard Gottfried, who was Patty's partner, and he said, Alan, and when people sing your name, you know there's something going on. <laughs> he said, Danny, Dan Melnick, our producer, Danny came up with this great idea for transposing the beach scene and the other scene. And I never do this, but I said, Howard, I've been after you guys to do that for two weeks. And he said, 
does it matter where a good idea comes from? And I learned a lesson on that. I mean, it doesn't matter. I knew that anyway, but it doesn't matter. And we moved it around, and uh, she won an Academy Award for a two-and-a-half-minute performance in it, a Best Supporting Actress. Um, it's... Um, and you knew it right away, so that's... Well, I didn't know she was going to win an Academy Award. But you knew that that was a gem within... Well, it, it, not only was the performance a gem, but the scene was a key scene. Yeah. And... Um, I was willing to fight for that one. Um, you don't win a lot, but you win occasional ones. <laughs> well, that film too, I, I mean, I expected it to get a lot of Oscar nominations. I never expected it to be nominated for editing. Absolutely never. It went so easily. I mean, compared to um, Lenny, which was work, really hard work, 14 months, I think, from beginning to end. Um, that would be the exact opposite of your experience on network, it would seem. Pretty much. Yeah and bleeding the performances on Lenny, working the performances and getting what we wanted. And, and um, you know, it was a great, uh, Fossey called me a collaborator and I, I don't think that can be a better compliment for an editor. Um, I mean, we really worked together, we discussed things, we kicked them around, we moved things around. We spent a lot of time in the cutting room and, uh, you know, it's a job. It's, but when you get a couple of good movies, it's worth it. Well, you have more than a couple, that's for sure. Yeah, I've been kind of lucky. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's part of it. You know, you have to be, you have to be in the right place at the right time, and then uh, be able to take advantage of it and hope that things will continue that way. Um, when I moved here, when I worked in New York, and became a picture editor. I really thought my life was going to be, oh, this is wonderful, I'll go from one great project to the next. I was fairly soon disabused of that. But the first five films I worked on were really pretty good movies, I think. Not the first five, but the first five good ones. Um, so there's a, a series of films that kind of have a theme here. I've got um, Liza with a Z, Godspell, Hair, and All That Jazz. This whole musical theme um, that I see in your um, in your career. What Was there an intention to do um, all those kind of in a row or around the same time? or No, again, it's um, a lot of it is luck. I was a music editor. Uh, I'm not a musician, but I have a very good rhythmic sense, and I used to be able to really Again, working on film. I couldn't do it today with all the fancy Pro Tools and things. And maybe I could, I don't know. But I was able to edit music and make it fit and pick music out of libraries. And uh, I did it for television shows. And when um, I got a call one day to uh, meet with Bob Fosse, a producer I knew was producing Liza with a Z. Trying to remember, yeah, yeah. Um, so I met. Uh, I went up. It was right after Cabaret was released, and my late wife had seen Cabaret, and she said, "You got to go see this movie." And I really never liked movie musicals much. Um, so I went down the next day to meet Fosse at the Broadway Arts, which is a rehearsal studio in New York, which was replicated and all that jazz, right down to the taps on the wall. Oh, wow. um, but I went down, met Fosse, went up into this really small room, 
with dancers hurling themselves about with incredible abandon. And I'm talking to Fassi in the middle of the room, and people are sliding up to our feet and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And I was wired. I really was wired. I called home, and I said, I'm going to go see Cabaret now. And I... Uh, went to see Cabaret, and then I said, oh my God, I really want to do this movie. I really want to do this. I, I want to work with this guy, I mean, with Fosse. So, um, fortunately, he hired me. He was a little dubious in that I couldn't read music, but um, we worked well together, and Liza with a Z was, um, that was one of the three shows. I mean, he, he, he that year he won an Emmy, a Tony, and a, an Oscar. And, um, Liza with a Z was, was the uh, Emmy one. Pippin um, was the Tony. and um, So I read that was. Liza with a Z is a one-hour live concert shot yes. with nine cameras. I haven't actually seen it myself, but yes. that is, seems a very daunting task for an actor. It was, it was uh, daunting. Yeah. It was a live concert, black tie, at a beautiful theater. I think the Plymouth Theater in New York. It was a beautiful theater, often vacant. But it, uh, it had great period detail and uh, it's available now by the way if you want to watch it it's available on uh, DVD it was for a long time not available uh, because it was technically impossible to get it on videotape it would streak because of the way it was lit uh, Owen Reisman who shot Network uh, shot that and Bob wanted it to be stage lighting. And Bob loves black and white. I mean, very deep contrast. Yeah. And whenever we... Used to be when you watched a basketball game or something fast-moving on television, uh, things would streak because the, the technology could not keep up with the, the eye. And what was happening with the Liza Minnelli show was the same thing. It was streaking. We got it on the air. It went on the air with distorted sound. And... Um, because we really pushed it, and we pushed it too far. Um, the, the network made some mistakes in showing it, and uh, it still won an Emmy, but it wasn't for many years, probably till eight years ago, that Craig Zayden got together with Liza Minnelli. She owned the rights to it and uh, issued it as a beautiful DVD. And they fixed the streaks and yeah. remastered it. Well, you can so do it now, yeah. 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 You can do things like that. Anyway, I worked with Bob. It was nine cameras. Um, we were trying to figure out how to sync up nine, it was 16 millimeter cameras, and except for two, uh, one at the back of the um, of the uh, uh, the main floor and one at the top front of the balcony, everything was handheld. And um, there was some discussion about how to slate it electronically or what. And we finally, they wanted to put a clock up on top and then pan down from the clock. And I said, well, why don't we just sync it up? And I got two assistants, and, and we just sunk everything as we went. And Well, as we went. It was a one-night shoot. One. A so. lot of writing on that one night, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're working with Bob Fosse as well on your Oscar win for all that jazz. Yeah. Um, well, we got along well. <laughs> can you tell me about that experience? Well, we, I had, we had done Lenny after all that jazz. And Lenny was a really... Um, Really great collaborative experience. We felt that uh, Dustin's performance was was weak. He did not have the edge of 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 Lenny Bruce. Dustin, like many actors, wants to be liked, and 
so he was softening the performance and we came up and I don't remember if it was Bob or me I think it was me but we came up with the idea of breaking the script was again an incredible script and we came up with the idea of breaking up the routines still more if you've seen the movie it, it the structure is both flash forwards and flashbacks and what what Ralph Burns the composer used to refer to as Fosse time it was never it was the time of the movie whatever was happening we let the audience discover where we were but the basic structure was Lenny had an incident in his life built a comic routine around the incident and it was sort of sitting there the whole film was sitting there and I said well what if we break up the real stuff with his comic routine more than was in the script which is what we did and suddenly the performance became uh, it became shorter it became tighter and it became much more alive so in that way you were able to optimize what footage you had by changing the sequence yes we 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 intentionally well what we do editors often are improving performances uh and when I say improving, the actor does it, but there are different reasons that things don't work. Uh, an editor, I believe that, that an editor um, interposes himself between the director's vision and what the director really filmed. And it's an interesting psychological position. Um, Sometimes a director might be almost delusional in what they think they have. And um, the, the editor's job is to somehow make that film work. That's not usually the case, but there's no film. I can't imagine any film that comes out of, uh, comes from the script to the screen unchanged. It's almost never the case uh, network was probably the closest uh, that I've ever worked on um, so you know the, to to, uh, to fiddle with structure is almost a normal thing you take the end of the movie put it at the beginning you drop in Lenny we drop 20 minutes uh, just before the ending because we had to show it to the to the producer the next morning and about 10 o'clock, we all went to dinner, my crew, we all went out to dinner with Fosse, and we didn't talk about it much. We had some nice dinner, maybe a drink. Went back to the editing room. I hate to work late. Went back to the editing room about midnight, figuring I'm going to be there all night. And I said to Bob, in the elevator, I said, why don't we just kill the son of a bitch? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when Lenny gets dragged out of the courtroom, we had 20 minutes of material in between saying goodbye to his daughter, all sorts of stuff. I don't even remember. Wandering around the house eating peanut butter. Um, and so we went back to the cutting room and I took out 20 minutes and went to him dead on the floor. And Bob said, that'll do for tomorrow. And we went home. Then we knew we had to put back some of what we had taken out. And yeah. we had to figure out how to do that. But... Um, rather than spend the whole night there messing around this it got you from Lenny's last 
functioning moment to his death. Over. I mean, it, it, it was concise storytelling. Definitely. Um, I want to kind of jump a bit here. Please. Um, you edited The Notebook. Yes. And I think that uh, pretty much every woman in the world will thank you for that. <laughs> that was... Uh, you know, probably on a, a lot of people, a lot of women I know is top three movies of all time. And a lot of men, actually. They will admit that they love the film as well. Well, my producer on that, Mark Johnson, was doing a film in New Zealand, The Hobbit or something like that. Oh, I heard of that, yeah. And somebody on the crew was wearing, a guy on the crew was wearing a t-shirt that said, Ladies, I love The Notebook. So, I yeah. bet it works for him. What girl wouldn't come up and talk to that guy? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Manly yeah. enough to admit it. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was... Uh, well, it was... Go ahead. You had a question. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you... So, the, the chemistry uh, between the leads, like, did you... Were you able to see that in the dailies right away? Is it something that oh. you could feel was just going to work out very well? How did you react to when you first saw? Well, you know... Uh, both of them was fairly unknown, were fairly unknown then. Um, and in point of fact, they hated each other. Uh, they worked differently. And uh, later, they were seeing each other, well after the picture, for a while. But, but the, uh, the, the, look. So you, Rachel McAdams... And Ryan Gosling hated each other when... Rumor has it. I stay away from this. Okay. (laughs) I'm an editor. You did not hear this here. No. I mean, Walter Murch never wants to see... He never goes to the set. He doesn't want to see actors in costume. Um, And I know on on, uh, Star 80, I would run into Eric Roberts in the elevator, and he was always in character. And it was an unpleasant experience. And in the morning, Eric... And he'd look daggers at me. Um... We joke about it now, but... Uh, yeah, he was intense in that, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, the Notebook was... Uh, that was an interesting... It was an interesting case, film. Uh, I love working with Nick Cassavetes. He is a very challenging guy. Um, and I like to be pushed. And Fosse was like this. Nick always says that I'm kidding when I say this, but I just love working with Cassavetes and I'm not saying that because he's doing a film soon Uh, (laughs) but but he is um, he's a guy with interesting an interesting point of view he is his father's son he shakes things up a lot with the studios with in the editing we we just do free things and and it, it allows me to run free notebook Notebook was really a, an unusual experience. If you're telling a story about the history of a family, who better than James Garner to read the book? You know, I mean, right away, even though he's, you know, I mean, it's a story about young love, but carries through life. And uh, we, Nick and I knew the film was good. Um, Early on, we had a screening and in my cutting room with seven people. And uh, Dee Dee Allen, the editor who had edited um, 
Nick's uh, previous movie with, with uh, Denzel Washington, John Q. Didi was an old friend, and she was there, and the, a couple of other people, casting director, um, Nick's friends, and my girlfriend was next to me. And uh, the room was small, and, and Nick is very tall. He's 6'5", and there's no place for him to sit, so he lay down in front of the monitor behind the coffee table. And at one point, uh, my girl, I, I hear sniffling behind me. And I turn around, and my girlfriend is dabbing her eyes and then sort of quietly blowing her nose. And people are reaching over and asking if she has extra tissues. And at this point, Nick came up from behind the coffee table, like some kind of whale almost. <laughs> he came up, he looked around, he broke into a big grin, and he sank down behind the coffee table again. And we knew at that point the film was very good. Then the producer came in. Mm, probably shouldn't say this, but the producer came in and he said, um, and we really wanted input from him. We really wanted input. And he said, there's a good movie in there. You haven't found it yet. That's not what you want to hear. I mean, you'd like to have positive. Even if, no, you'd like to have actual, real input. You haven't found it yet? That doesn't mean anything. You've got a room full of people vi like visibly moved by what they just saw, yeah. and then you hear that. Yeah, that was a different screening, but and that was just for him. But, um, but even then, if you're going to give criticism, it should be criticism. I mean, it should... Maybe you should consider lengthening this character, or maybe you should expand... Constructive criticism. Constructive Something criticism. to act on, yeah. And in this case, you haven't found it yet. It was very disappointing to both of us. Um, so, we didn't... Did you change anything major after that? Or was it? Well, did you kind of stick to the same... It was pretty much the same. Yeah. Nick wanted to shoot a couple of scenes. Um, we had some technical problems that had to be fixed before we could have a screening. New Line didn't want to fix the problems. I mean, physical. Okay. A scratch on the film in a very key scene in every take. Um, and we wanted to remove it. It was very distracting. It was right down the actress's face. And the studio didn't want to give us money. They said, well, you know, if you do that, maybe it's not going to be in the movie. We said it's going to be in the movie. And Nick went off and played golf until they changed their mind. <laughs> so we shot a couple of small scenes, but the film was pretty much what you see. The only big issue was whether, we, whether they die at the end with their eyes open and their eyes closed. And Nick never, uh, never wanted to compromise, only shot it with their eyes open, and the studio wanted the eyes closed. So in exchange for doing, uh, giving us other stuff, he shot one with the eyes closed. We still like it with the eyes open. But we don't know. I mean, we spoke to medical people, and some people die with their eyes open, some with their eyes closed. Yeah. That last scene is just such a tearjerker. Yeah. Did, yeah. did you cry when you watched it? Me? Yeah. Nah. But, yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> oh, but, you know, I, no. I, I, but, look, yeah. I look at the dailies. I look at the dailies a lot. And it's hard to, to uh, be moved. You try and remove yourself uh, from the process. But it's hard to, uh, if you let yourself cry at everything. I do sob occasionally in movies I work on. Uh, but what happened then was very interesting. We had a, a test screening. No, we had, a, we had a preview in one of the small towns to the west of here, Tarzana or something like that. And uh, 
I went, as I always do, to the screening in the morning to check out the theater and make sure everything was running okay. We ran the movie, and one of our producers came, and she hated the movie. She absolutely hated it. And when we broke for lunch, she was sitting with some people, and I could see that she was very worried. So that night, um, at the end of the screening, people were... First place, the room looked like, like it was filled with popcorn. It was everybody's tissues. Um, and there was a 15-year-old girl outside the screening room with her father and she outside the theater, and she was sitting on a bench, and she couldn't move. She was crying so hard. And we scored very high for a first screening. And the studio said, do whatever you want, basically. And we walked out feeling pretty good, but until that moment, you never know. Um, no, that's a great that's a great story. Yeah. I feel like that in in any home of anybody that's watching it uh, on their own is pretty much that same situation. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. I suggested to the producer that he they give out tissues at the screening, and at the premiere they did. <laughs> they made something that looked like a soda can, so it fit into the uh, cup holder, and uh, Kleenex made us <laughs> tissues with the logo of the film on the outside the boat. Oh wow, that's amazing. And that was just, uh, it's very rewarding to reach an audience, to, to, to get an audience to have an emotional response, laughter, crying, um, fear. I mean, in all that jazz, the heart surgery, um, I went to see it right after it opened in the afternoon to see what it played like with a, with a <coughs> matinee audience. And when the heart surgery came up, a whole bunch of people, about eight people, got up. Most of them were together, five of them were together, and three other people, and they got up and they walked out, averting their eyes from the screen. And I saw Fosse that evening, and I said, uh, several people walked out, and they said, good, we reached them. And it's true. It's just, it's true. Creating a reaction in, in the audience is important to you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. I mean, what's what's it about? We're entertaining people. We're, we're educating people. We do all sorts of I think a, a great example of that is um, American History X. Ah. Uh, kind of the, the opposite uh, reaction from, say, something like The Notebook, but as intense, um, it, or even more so as well. What was your experience working on that? It was, a, it was a very strange experience. For one thing, there were three Academy Award-winning editors working on it serially. Uh, Richard Halsey was the first. I was the second, and uh, Jerry Greenberg finished it. Um, there was a lot of conflict with the actors and the writer and us and the director. The director was on our side, but the studio, New Line, um, went with Edward Norton, who was a bankable star at that time, while Tony Kay, the director, was a bit of a loose cannon. And you weren't around then, but uh, Tony took... There was a big conflict going on. Uh, Ed Norton wanted more control. And uh, the studio gave it to him. Then Ed wanted to walk, work with me, and I wouldn't work with him for personal reasons. Um, he Well, when we were introduced, I came on after the film was shot, and we were introduced, uh, I put out my hand, and he ignored my hand, and he said, you missed every nuance of my performance. And 
such it's such a blanket bombing I mean I didn't know what to do I mean I was enraged uh, but there was several also you know, the fact that he ignored my hand was not very nice but also he was uh, very buff for the role and I'm me I'm, and he's much taller than I am and I'm looking at this guy who looks like a weightlifter and I'm thinking um, ah, no I don't think so I'm not going to rip out his throat it was very tempting um so I just avoided him and the writer. I, I forbade the writer to come into my room. Um, so when uh, Edward wanted to take over the movie, I said, I can't do this. I worked with Tony for a while. And then Edward got more and more uh, pushy. And I said, I, you know, I'm leaving. And I suggested Jerry, and Jerry took it over. And Jerry you know, finished up pretty well. I so. heard a rumor that the final cut was actually edited by Edward Norton. I don't know. He worked very closely with Jared. Yeah. Um, but I don't know the, the full story, and I really didn't want to know. I just It was an amazing experience. Tony took full-page ads in the trade papers, which is not, uh, not an inexpensive thing to do. Uh, with very strange quotes, like a, a quote from a Beatles song or something, all of which indicated his displeasure with New Line and, and the studio. It became quite a, a scandal in uh, out here. Wow. But uh, Tony Kay is he's a very talented director, uh, particularly an original. He shot the film. That, that was one of the problems. He was supposed to direct it. He fired the cameraman the first day. He shot it. He let Edward direct the actors. And there was a lot of improv that really didn't work very well. I saw a big, big chunk of the film the other night by coincidence. And it's really... Um, it's, it's been much simplified since I left it. I mean, somehow a lot of Ed's improvisational mistakes were taken out. And I guess Jerry did that. But... Uh, were there any scenes in the film that that you put together that are still remaining? Probably. Yeah. I really, I don't remember. It's been so long. No, no it's, uh, There was actually a fourth editor who was on from the beginning, a friend of Tony's from England. And he, was, he had never worked in a feature film. He did mostly commercials. But he did a, a really splendid job of it, and, and we worked very well together. What was the goal of having certain black and white footage and then certain color footage was it do you know if it was shot black and white for that for um, those scenes or you know I'm trying to remember the film was is, most of it was black and white at the end I know we went into color I think because of the blood um, but Tony Tony shot an enormous amount of footage and he shot a lot of it in extremely slow motion um, like the seagulls and, and and Tony's idea was, if you had a problem, he'd go out with a camera and he'd shoot some stuff, which was not necessarily dealing with the problem, but then you'd find a way to use it somehow. Uh, he shot that little boy on the beach wearing a fireman's helmet. He called me. He called me one morning and he said, do I have to come in today? Is there anything for me to do in the cutting room? And I said, no, why don't you just go shoot a couple of commercials and make some money uh, so you can pour it into this film. And he said, I did that this morning um, in his backyard. And then he went to the beach and he shot all of that 
seagull stuff in slow motion. And I said, whatever you do, see if you can get the fireman theme into it. And imagine my surprise, he put a fireman's hat on the kid. And then we used that. I thought it was very useful uh, for the family situation. So it was fun. I mean, it was really fun, but then it became intolerable. I want to talk about um, a film that is actually uh, one of my favorites, um, Quick Change. Oh. <laughs> Tell me that was a blast to work on. That was surprising that you said that. <laughs> Uh, I had the movie channels when I was a kid. I yeah. had them all. Um, and so I would see some, a lot of films that maybe other people may not see or what have you, but I just remember watching it over and over and over again just because it's really? so smart. And it gave me ideas about how to rob a bank, you know, if I needed to know that later on in life. Yeah, how to wear clown <laughs> shoes, <laughs> right. Right. Um... How was it? Yeah. Well, you know, there were two directors. Okay. Uh, Bill Murray and Howard Franklin. Howard was the writer. And Bill wanted Howard... Howard wanted to be a director and has since directed some other movies. Um, so Howard had the script. Bill wanted to direct the script. Howard said... No, I'll co-direct it with you. He felt, he felt that was going to be an entree into directing for him. Uh, so, it was. I didn't know how that would work, having two directors. And it wasn't the most ideal situation. When they finished shooting, Howard would come into the cutting room in the morning. Bill, being a night person, would come in in the afternoon. And Howard and I would work on a scene. Then Bill would come in and undo the scene. And Howard would come in the next morning and we'd do another scene and Bill would come in and undo the scene. And I said to the producer, "This we have to figure out a way to work so that we don't have to do the same. We'll be here forever. And so we got them both to come in at the same time and it became kind of interesting. Do you remember when any scenes in particular where... You know, it was kind of going either way for them. All the scenes. All of the scenes. All the scenes. <laughs> and because I remember later, the sequence in the beginning where you know they're they're taking off their costumes and, and putting right. regular clothes on and that whole um, that whole sequence where it's kind of a trick of the eye, not knowing where they went and, and coming out of the building and such. Right. Um, you know, I don't remember the specifics. I will say that. Um, at the rap party, I was talking to the guy who played the um, police captain, a small actor, and when I was working on his scenes, he seemed to be always terrified a little bit. And I was talking to him at the rap party, I said, you seemed very nervous. What was that about? He said, well, um, Howard would give me certain directions, and then I'd do a take, and Bill would come over and give me opposite directions. So Bill wanted to make a serious movie. This comic, comedians always want to make serious movies. Come, Bill's become a really good actor. Um, I didn't think he was a very good actor in most of his career. He just sort of... I mean, he has a persona, and he delivers a persona. He doesn't act well with others. And we didn't get along. He and I didn't get along at all. 
I didn't handle it too well either, but he, he threw a synchronizer at me once, a heavy object. <laughs> oh, wow. Luckily, it was tethered to the bench by a cable, so it couldn't go far. He was a big, strong guy. Um, With big, strong opinions, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you never knew what would trigger him. You never know. The producer blamed it on himself. The only time, actually, the only time Bill threw fits, and he did a few, was when the producer was around. Um, but he didn't do it for the producer. He, he didn't like me. Uh oh. Um, another so. comedy, uh, along with Quick Change, that I really loved is Funny Farm. Funny Farm was a wonderful experience. It was really nice. Uh, George Roy Hill was a terrific director. That was his last movie. I've done several directors' last movies. Is that a bad thing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but George asked me to do the movie and it took me to Vermont for several months um, and everybody it was just a lovely experience it was a smart script and uh, I've seen that one recently on television it kind of holds up um, well Chevy Chase is just amazing and you know the scene where he comes out of the water and he's got like a snake wrapped around his neck and he's just flailing and I mean he's kind of the slapstick comedian yeah, no, but he's he was also a terrific physical comic but he, <laughs> he also had a certain warmth uh, about him and uh, he acted very well with, with uh, Madeline Stowe uh, in the movie and, and George was just a, he was a fine director of, of actors and smart smart really nice um, You know, you, when you got a script that, that George worked on, I mean, we were, wrote, worked, it was, it was, a, it worked well. I mean, it just worked that well. Was he was a very careful director, very careful, very conservative. And uh, we had a great time doing it. I mean, I loved doing it. Um, not only films, but you've also uh, edited for HBO. Uh, I was reading about, yeah. I haven't seen it myself. Well, they're but kind of movies. Great Grey Garden. Yes. Great Gardens or Great Gardens? Great Gardens. Great Gardens? Yeah. Um, Toronto. Yes, Toronto again. Toronto again. Um, so we've got, you know, two major film stars, Drew Barrymore um, and Jessica, no, Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was Drew's project, and uh, the director, um, oddly enough, worked as a production assistant on a film that I had worked on for a short time in New York years ago. I didn't know him, but we discovered that while talking one day. Um, that, was a, that was a really... You know, television is a little different than, than, uh, uh, than editing a feature film. You tend to have less material. The director was very careful to replicate certain scenes from the documentary, Grey Garden, and uh, ironically enough, I, knew, I don't know if ironically is the right word, but I, I knew a lot of the people who were involved in the making of the original Grey Gardens when I lived in New York. Uh, so the actress's performances were spectacular, and the, the look of the film was really wonderful. Um, again, not a hard film. The, the frustration of that was we had problems with the beginning and the ending, which is always the case with a movie. And um, we would show 
we would send the film to HBO in, in New York or wherever they were at that time. And the only person who could really make decisions was Colin Callender, who's no longer with the network, but had really built up that area of the, the movie of the week thing. And he was very busy with the release of John Adams, which was a big thing for them. So we kept getting notes from people who really didn't matter. And we knew they didn't matter. It was Colin we wanted to get the film to. And we just couldn't do it. So that led to more and more screenings. And the more screenings you have, the more stuff comes up. More you know, opinions come out. More, more opinions come out. Yeah. And um, eventually, I had a commitment. I had to leave the film. And Lee Percy came on and finished it. Um, and I think did a great job and came up with, with an idea that probably had been through the hopper before, but was, was again, taking the ending of the film, opening with the ending, and uh, making it a kind of a frame for the picture. The ending being when they show the film to the girls for the first time, to the women for the first time. Because we, the director was very, uh, very much wanted to open with the nightclub scene, and uh, we kept trying. It didn't, it didn't hook you in, and, and Lee's ending worked very well. That took months. That film, and between the two of us, it just took months. But the performances were just great, and uh, we, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate the. Uh, both, both of the actresses, one, HBO wanted to nominate one for Best Supporting Actress and one for Best Actress, and uh, they wouldn't allow it. I forget which one, but they both wanted to be nominated as Best Actress. So really only one could win. It gets silly. <laughs> I'll have to look into how that ended. I don't I think, I think, I think, uh, I think Jessica won, but I'm not sure. That's a little sticky. But they were both absolutely wonderful. Just, so you've, you've edited, I think, over 40 films? Something like that. Something like that. Um, what is your, you know, experience going with, like, the different types of editorial technology? Mm, um, I've been pretty much... Highs and the all. lows, and the, you've probably seen everything. And Well, when I started working, I worked... Um, I worked uh, on a moviola which was a technology that was developed about 1922. And I have a couple of moviolas in my collection, little ones, from about that period, not quite, but close. The technology didn't change for 75 years. They added magnetic sound as opposed to optical sound. I did work with optical sound when I was in the Army. Um, but basically the technology had not changed. Then you had editing tables, which I worked on, Steenbeck's chems, few others. And then uh, the AFIT started coming in in the late 80s, early 90s, and I was given the opportunity to work on it, and it hurt the eyes. I mean, it was really primitive. It pixelated. Uh, a guy owned one and, and thought maybe I would rent it, and he taught me how to use it. And I just was exhausted just looking at the screen. The images were tiny. Um, so I... I I was hoping that the technology would not catch up with me before I had to retire. <laughs> but it caught up with me. And in the late, middle 90s, 
um, I was offered an opportunity to do a film in San Francisco, Copycat, which I had to learn the lightworks for. So my assistant, who knew the lightworks very well, the guy I had never met before, in exchange for us teaching him about film, which he didn't know anything about, um, he would teach me how to do the lightworks. And uh, after a couple of weeks, maybe less, I would have a problem, and but by the time I called him and he came in, I usually solved it. And, you know, I just had to learn it. I had to. And then my next film was uh, for Barbara Streisand. It had to be on the Avid. Sony was pushing the Avid. And uh, so I spent three very intense days with a coach uh, and learned what I had to learn. And to this day, I mean, I could... I don't know if I could still edit a film on a moviola, but uh, I know I've forgotten a lot of things about splicing. But, you know, it used to be a physical act. I, I regard film, and I still do, as almost a plastic medium like sculpture. And you can push it and twist it and, and, and make it do different things. Um, with film, you got more of a sense of that. But it's, it's a, a technology. Cassavetes asked me if I would do uh, Alpha Dog on um, film. Because he, when he was young, he worked with his father in the editing room, and he always likes he likes the hustle and bustle of film, you know. So I thought for about 30 seconds, and I said, no, nah, uh, not this film, not with you. Um, because he's a guy who likes to make a lot of changes. So... You can deliver, most editors can deliver a first cut pretty quickly, and you have to. I mean, in television, you have no time to do a show, and they get more and more film. Well, get more and more images. Um, sometimes on a feature film, you'll get eight hours of material a day. I mean, I've never been in that situation, but with the red camera or with the electronic cameras. Now, how do you fit, how do you look at eight hours of material, absorb it, and make a uh, a movie out of that and still ever get out of the cutting room, ever. So um, television, they do it too. So the people, you have to work really fast. You have to be fairly accurate and um, you know, make make decisions very quickly and live with them for a while, as, as much time as you have. Anyway, with Nick, uh, I knew that it would be something of a disaster in the first week of... Uh, the, the script said uh, party, there's a party and there's about a half a page of dialogue and he shot that for over a week um, with nobody, nobody knowing what the music was in the background that we eventually found out um, a lot of it was just making things up so <laughs> to do that on film is, is harder to do it. I mean, when you have just great flexibility with the electronic editing, and I wouldn't go back to, to doing it on film. Um, I hear that Michael Kahn still works with Spielberg on film, but they may be switching. I'm not sure how they did uh, Lincoln. No idea. What do you, what do you think is, is next for you? Is there something... I mean, with all the types of films that you've done, is there... Uh, a genre or something that you you never got to do yet or something that you still uh, try to aim for like a, a crazy zombie movie or something like that no, that you haven't I, attained yet I kind of like it, it, it happened accidentally but 
most of the films I've done deal with, with human beings. Um, I don't particularly, I don't want to do a horror film. Um, somebody gave me a script to a project they really wanted to do, and I read the script. Um, I started reading the script. First I read the book it was based on, and then I started reading the script, and I wouldn't bring the script into my house. I read the script in a coffee shop or in, in an office somewhere. I didn't want it in my house. It, it was just so appalling to me. <laughs> and it's a director I really love working with, but I don't know if I would have done it. I have no idea if I would have actually done it if it never got off the ground. Um, so I like films that are kind of human, even if like God's behaving badly, that's God's human. But that's what makes them kind of appealing. And something you can relate to. Something, yeah, that I, and that I hope that people relate to. Because, you know, what editors do, I mean, we, we sort of guide the audience where to go. And horror films are good, they're fun, but um, I don't know, I, no, I, I just would just be very happy doing a nice comedy or a nice, nice film like The Notebook, small movie. What was uh, your favorite film to work with? Well, I loved working with Fosse. I mean, I really did. So Lenny was just a great experience. And um, actually, Star 80, which, which is a much underappreciated movie, was a spectacular experience to work on because everybody, the, the, I mean, the, the cameraman, uh, Sven Nikrit shot it, Everything in it, the performances, it, if it was not so well made, it would be unwatchable because uh, it's so grim and relentless. Yeah, Eric Roberts' performance is just intense. Yes, yes. We were all very disappointed. We thought Eric would get nominated for Academy Award, but people hated that movie. They hated it. Hated it. I did a film a year later or so, and the producer joined me at breakfast one morning, and he said, you seem like a nice guy. How could you work on such a vile movie? I didn't think it was vile. I mean, for what? It was based on a true story. It wasn't pleasant, but vile? I don't know. It was not liked out here, particularly in, in California, because it, it was a pretty big attack on show business in general and insincerity. A field that Fosse knew very well. Okay, well, um, thank you very much, Alan, for coming by. Oh, thank um, you. It was amazing to hear, um, you know, some of your behind-the-scenes stories and inside information. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Tend to talk me. too much. <laughs> no worries, no worries. It'll get me into trouble. <laughs> but I don't care. Thank okay, you. We're just getting sorry. We're going to do one intro. Um, okay. And this is my worst part because it's the. It's the Showtime line where I have to say, Hi, we're here with Alan oh, Haim. And Haim. Haim? Okay, that's, that's exactly it. I was like, can you tell me how to pronounce it? Okay. Um, you always need me to help help me with this. Oh. <laughs> just, it's, just, it's just literally just bang, bang, bang. Welcome back to Craft Truck and cut Alan Haim picture editor. That's it. Don't, don't hit me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, it's more on the face. <laughs> yeah, don't show marks. That's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Welcome back to Craft Trek. 
in the cut. We're here with Alan. Sorry, I was going to say. Lean back. Sorry. Lean back. Okay. You're sitting. Lean back. Well, <laughs> sit the way you're sitting, but you're you're like leaning so forward that you're losing okay. focus on that camera. And okay. Creeping into this camera. And that's scripted stuff. No. Welcome back to Craft Truck in the Cut. We're here with Alan Heem. Heim. Heim. <laughs> you want to try it again? Take three. It's a standard German pronunciation. <laughs> We're here with. Just lean back. Chewbacca. Okay. Um, Done. Uh, cool. You did very well with it. I don't know why that's so much. You did well. 